One of the great joys of being a minister is having the best seat at weddings. I get to stand right up close as the couple makes their vows to each other. And it was lovely to do that yesterday. This is not a photo from that wedding. This is just from the internet. It was lovely to do that yesterday for Nicole Webster, who's now Nicole Eborn. Uh, Some of you know Nicole. Uh, Some of you were at the wedding. Uh, Megan was in the bridal party and Matthias got a starring role. Uh, Nicole's dad uh, was the previous pastor of our church. Uh, Nicole moved to Gladstone a few years ago. I got pulled in at the last minute as her minister from Gladstone got sick and couldn't be part of the wedding. Uh, It was an immense privilege to have a front row seat at that wedding. It's an immense privilege to have it at other weddings, to experience uh, with the couple... Uh, their family and friends, the experience to experience the joy, uh, romance and hope of a wedding. But marriage is also a source of great pain and grief. For many, the story of marriage is one of disappointment, uh, frustration, uh, even betrayal. Today, as we keep listening to the voice of wisdom, we're going to listen to what Proverbs says about marriage. Uh, The title of the sermon is Wisdom and Wedlock because I wanted to keep us on the W theme and I've managed to do it despite having to use an old-fashioned word. Uh, This is a sermon, I have to admit, I'm a bit concerned about. Uh, Marriage is a topic that causes some anxiety. For some of us, we are married and it's a source of joy and satisfaction. Others of us are married, but unhappy. The relationship with your spouse is a cause of disappointment and pain. Others of us come to this topic having experienced divorce or being widowed. For some, we're single and never have married. And maybe that's something you're quite content in. Or maybe it's a cause of sadness. This may be a difficult topic for some of us. Some of us have never been married because of your age, you're young, it's not even on your radar. And actually I should have mentioned before there are activity sheets there on that table for the younger people because today is a day we're not running kids' church and I'm conscious of that. It probably wasn't the best planning to do this topic today. The the Proverbs are not crude but they speak about the physicality of marriage and sexuality. So because we're not running Kids Church this week, I'm going to speak a little euphemistically, a little bit more euphemistically than I would like. Uh, So I'm going to apologise up front. Things are not going to be... I'm not going to be able to speak as plainly and as clearly as the Bible does because this Sunday we're not running age-appropriate discipleship and teaching for our little ones. And so I'm going to say some things. You're going to have to fill in the blanks. Marriage is one of the really big themes in Proverbs. Uh, One commentary I read said marriage has more verses than any other topic. Unlike other topics, and you'll notice that in how we're approaching, approaching things today, the topic of marriage is not scattered throughout the Proverbs here and there. Instead, chapters 5 to 7 and then possibly the end of chapter 31, these chapters are focused on wisdom and warnings about marriage and relationships. So what we're going to do today is we're really just going to focus on Proverbs 5, which has both a a deadly serious warning and a delightful vision for wisdom in marriage. Now, one of the things some people find difficult about Proverbs 
comes about because of its setting. Uh, the picture of the setting of most of the Proverbs is you've got King Solomon. We meet him in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, King Solomon is the wisest person on the earth. And the setting of Proverbs is Solomon is, is teaching wisdom to his son. And we actually see this here in Proverbs chapter 5. Have a look at verse 1, Proverbs 5, 1. My son... Pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. Now, an interesting thing about Solomon, although he had 1,000 women in his harem, 700 wives and 300 concubines, despite his obscene marital practice, the Bible only mentions three children. Two daughters, one son. The one son is Rehoboam, who succeeds him as king. So the picture we get is, is Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is Solomon teaching his son, Rehoboam, how to listen to wisdom. Now, as, we, uh, as we're about to hear Solomon's wisdom about marriage in Proverbs 5, we've got to say... His experience of marriage, his numerous wives, is not a good reason to listen to him. In fact, 1 Kings 11 tells us his polygamy is his downfall. Uh, The thousand women in his harem, this isn't merely about Solomon's physical appetites. It's about power. In the ancient world, kings would marry the daughters of other kings to secure political power. Solomon's first wife was the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh. And you can assume part of the reason was to create an alliance with Egypt. Solomon's numerous wives was explicit disobedience against God. 1 Corinthians 11, sorry, 1 Kings 11. We'll get to Corinthians later. 1 Kings 11 makes that very clear. By doing this, Solomon was attempting to to shore up his power through the ways of the nations, through through pagan practices, rather than trusting in the Lord. And to top it off, by marrying pagan women, he ends up worshipping pagan gods. Now, this context of who Solomon is and who his son is shapes how we approach Proverbs 5. Maybe Solomon Solomon is telling Rehoboam, Do what I say, not what I do. Do what I say, not what I do. Another telling part of Solomon's story, Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba. Part of his story is his dad had taken advantage of his mum while she was married to someone else. And his dad conspired to murder to try and get away with what he'd done. Solomon knows the pain and destruction that comes from sin in this area. But also, if Solomon had listened to his dad, he also knows the joy of God's forgiveness, even of horrendous sin. And we see that in Psalm 51. Yes, David had sinned greatly in this area, but he also knew God's forgiveness. 
So that's part of the picture, part of the background of Proverbs 5. What's the warning Solomon gives his son? He tells his son, beware of the forbidden woman. Verse 3, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. In verse 2, Solomon wants his son to have lips that preserve knowledge and he does this by warning him of the forbidden woman and her appealing seductive lips. Uh, The word translated adulterous in the NIV, it's literally the word strange. And the King James translates it that way. And although that's literally what it is, that's a really hard sentence to understand. What's strange about her? I think the ESV is the most helpful translation. It translates the forbidden woman. And that's what I'm going to call her. She's the forbidden person, the forbidden woman. She's forbidden because God's law, and this goes right back to Genesis 2, forbidden because God is clear that physical intimacy is only for marriage. Physical intimacy is for one man and one woman who are publicly bound together. That's what the Bible says, the consistent testimony from Genesis 2, though we know humanity has been disobeying God in this right from Genesis 4. Uh, This image of the forbidden woman, she's appealing, she's seductive. And I wonder, as we were reading Proverbs 5, as Brent read it before, I wonder whether you thought, really? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't Solomon be warning his son, hey, mate, don't you be abusive? Don't be like your granddad, pressuring, taking advantage of women for your own pleasure. Don't be like me, using women as a tool for power. Surely the image should be the other way round. And in fact, in the Bible, there's loads of examples of men behaving badly, but the only temptress I can think of is Potiphar's wife. Uh, She stands out because she's kind of the exception to the rule. Potiphar's wife with Joseph in Egypt. I reckon the point of Proverbs 5 is not to paint women as the problem. Instead, there are two things going on. First, The son Solomon is speaking to, the picture that Proverbs is painting is of a young man who is walking on the way of wisdom. He's already on the path of wisdom. He's not a rake or a degenerate. He knows how to value and honour women. What he needs to hear is don't be led astray. The son of Proverbs is already walking in the ways of wisdom. Second, a thread that runs right through Proverbs is the imagery of the two women, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Proverbs 9 is the clearest example of this. These two metaphorical women are calling out for us to listen. Are you going to be wise or are you going to be foolish? And so this forbidden woman is part of this theme, part of this picture. Wisdom says, don't listen to the forbidden woman, the lady folly, even though her words are sweet and smooth. And why is it foolish to listen? Because although she appears sweet and smooth, listening to her, being taken in by her seduction, will end in destruction. Verse 4. But in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honour to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. 
Let strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how I, my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in this assembly of God's people. Uh, this is a serious warning. And I think in our saner moments, we know this is true. But it needs to be said because we're not always sane. Now we, we know this is said, the context is of a dad speaking to his son. But whether you're male or female, we all need to hear this warning. What the forbidden person offers, no matter how good it looks, is deeply destructive. And we know this. In our saner moments, we know this. We know families hurt by broken promises. For many of us, this is too close to home. The pain is raw. Maybe we're the one who was unfaithful. Or we were betrayed. Either way, we know the pain and how it ripples out. And it doesn't matter if you're married or single. Proverbs says, tasting the sweet honey of the forbidden person's lips will end up bitter and sour. The forbidden person promises a world of pleasure but ends in death. Particularly if you are married, the cost of infidelity is huge. It destroys relationships, uh, reputations. You lose people's respect. It costs financially. Uh, One widely respected international study claims it takes on average, so this is on average, it can be a lot worse than this, on average six years to recover financially from divorce and sad to say it's much harder for women. They suffer much worse according to this study. And in our world, we need to say the forbidden person doesn't need to be a physical person. Pornography is rife and terribly destructive on people and relationships. Jesus says, lusts of the eyes is the same as adultery. And experience says he's right. It warps our view of people treating them as objects for our gratification rather than full human beings. And for those who are married, it causes resentment toward our spouse and the experience of betrayal. And this is not only about videos and pictures, but racy romance novels. It's terribly destructive, terribly unwise. Don't get seduced by the forbidden person. But the deeper reason for Christians to flee this temptation, to not go near the door, is because what we do with our bodies matters. It's not just the results that are bad. What we do with our bodies intrinsically matters. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, 
the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Uh, This passage has nothing to do with smoking, nothing to do with eating too much McDonald's. Neither of them are particularly good ideas, but it's got nothing to do with that. This is about intimate activity. We are not meat puppets. We're not just brains floating around and what we do with our bodies is immaterial. No, what we do with our bodies matters because by faith we are united to Christ. So his spirit dwells within us bodily. It matters because Jesus died to redeem our bodies because Jesus will raise our bodies. Yes, the sin of physical intimacy is foolish because it's destructive, but even more, it's a denial of what our bodies mean when we are united to Christ by faith. So that's the warning, that's the danger. But this doesn't mean intimacy is wrong or yucky. It's not that wisdom calls the wise person to be ascetic, to uh, to say no to any form of pleasure and particularly no physical pleasure. So back to Proverbs 5, the counterpoint to the forbidden woman isn't to say no to physical intimacy and physical pleasure, but to rejoice in God-glorifying marital intimacy. So let's read from verse 15, Proverbs 5.15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. This is a beautiful picture celebrating one of God's good gifts. It's unashamedly physical. But I wonder how you felt as you heard that. Maybe it brought you joy as you reflected on your own marriage and the delight you have in your spouse. Maybe it stung. Maybe it stung because you're married, but the joy is long gone if it was ever there. Or it's stung because of the ache it reminds you of as a single person. The Proverbs deal with disappointment and pain in marriage. Uh, There's the well-known Proverbs of the nagging wife. Uh, For example, Proverbs 21.19, better to live in the desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Uh, sadly, in our culture, and I'm not—I'm sure it's not just our culture—the uh, trope of the nagging wife has been done to death, uh, used by men and women to justify hard hearts and bitterness. 
It's grist for the mill for sitcoms. I'm probably showing my age here, but it makes me think of Everybody Loves Raymond. Or there are cards uh, that say things like, first there is the engagement ring, then the wedding ring, finally the suffering. It's, it's not funny, is it? It's not funny. It, it's sad. The Proverbs about the nagging spouse, they're there in the Bible, but it's not cynicism. Why are they there? On one level, it's calling for wisdom as you think about preparing for marriage. Husbands and wives are sinners, and there can be quarrelsomeness and nagging. So if you're looking to get married, don't get married to someone like that. It's not going to end well. But I wonder if on another level the point is if you're in this kind of relationship where there once was love and joy, delight and respect, but now there's bitterness, constant put-downs and criticism, harsh start-ups and eye-rolling disdain, and you're not sure how you got there. But it's no longer new. In fact, you're used to it. And there's a perverse comfort you get from the toxic relationship and from years, even decades, of this kind of treatment of one another. I take it the point of these Proverbs is to wake us up, to call the wise person, the godly person, the person who fears the Lord, to not continue down this road. If you read Proverbs like 21.19 and you go, yep, that's my spouse, then probably that's not why you married them. This proverb is a wake-up call. What have you done? You're the one who's being called to be wise. What have you done to contribute? What do you need to apologise for? How will you confess your failing and sin against your spouse? If this really hits home, Proverbs 21.19, most likely you need to reach out for help for wise counsellors to help you relearn how to delight in each other. Now I'm talking here about marriages that have become unhealthy, not abusive. If there's abuse, you need to take much more drastic steps. Proverbs 5 calls married people to delight in their spouse, not to be cynical, not to settle for quarrels and nagging. Back to Proverbs 5, another mistake people have made with this passage is thinking the antidote to temptation is marriage. That if the forbidden person is too tempting, and especially in our culture, if images and videos are too tempting then find anyone who will marry you and do it as quickly as possible. People have wrongly said God's only source for holiness if you're single is marriage. Now that might fit with what our culture says about desire and identity, but it's not what the Bible, especially 1 Corinthians 7 says. God's answer to temptation is the work of the Spirit, the encouragement of the church, fleeing temptation and finding joy in Christ. The logic of Proverbs 5, 15 to 19 is, first, 
God is not opposed to pleasure and beauty. It's wise to delight in your spouse. And second, in the context of the my son, the son of Solomon, the father is saying that the thing God and wisdom endorses is much better than what's forbidden. For Solomon's son, who is either married or as heir to the throne in his culture, would probably already be betrothed, he needs to not repeat the sins of his father and grandfather because it's foolish. And what's more leads to God's judgment. Verse 20, why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of the wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Uh, The great danger, or a great danger of intimate sin is we fool ourselves into thinking nobody will know. What I watch in the privacy of my own screens and what, what we do in private We fool ourselves into thinking no one will ever know. But verse 21 reminds us, God does. These sins damage our hearts, they hurt our relationships. When it becomes public, it damages our reputation. But most of all, verse 21, God sees. So we've heard of the danger, we've been reminded of the delight, but why is this such a big deal? Why does Proverbs spend so much time on this topic? Uh, The reason is because marriage and godliness with our bodies, the reason it's a big deal is because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Uh, One of the themes that unites the whole Bible is marriage. Uh, The one big story of the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. And the key place we see this marriage gospel picture, you can see it all over the Bible, um, a really straightforward place is Ephesians 5. Uh, In Ephesians 5, Paul starts off talking about marriage, very practically about marriage, about how our new life in Christ is played out in marriages. But by the time he gets to the end, he says, actually, it's all about Jesus. So have a listen Proverbs, uh, sorry, Ephesians 5.31 For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2. Uh, this is a profound ministry, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Why does God care about what we do with our bodies? how we live as married people or as single people, it's because human marriage, as imperfect as they all are, marriage is a lived-out example of Christ's self-giving love and delight in the church. So when we, either as married or single people, when we listen to the lips of the forbidden person, we're living out a denial of the gospel. And as we've heard the wisdom of Proverbs 5, I'm guessing many of us are feeling inadequate, 
ashamed or guilty. Maybe we're feeling angry or frustrated about how others have treated us and sinned against us. And Ephesians 5 says this is a big deal. We're talking about Christ and the church. But the great news of the gospel, I'm talking about Christ and the church, is who is the church Jesus loves? Who is it that Jesus graciously loves and unites to himself, pouring out his spirit to dwell in us? Who does Jesus do that to? It's sinners. It's people like you and me who've been foolish and selfish. It's people like you and me who've been taken advantage of and sinned against. And yet we come to Christ. We trust in him because he loves his people. He died for his people that we might know his love for us and his delight in us. And then the beautiful thing is, whether married or single, we get to live out our lives, our physical and relational faithfulness. We get to show a watching world something about the love we have experienced in knowing Christ. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we are so thankful for Jesus, for the grace you've shown in him. As we hear your wisdom in Proverbs, we know how in many ways we have been unwise. We've done things which by rights leads to death. Which is why once again we thank you so much for Jesus, for his loving grace that we, though previously your enemies, are now brought into his bride, the church. Please help us all, whether married or single, to live faithfully, to flee temptation. We pray for those who are married. May their marriages be full of joy and delight. Please help us be a church that supports and encourages each other to live as those who are united to Christ and filled with his spirit. Amen.